This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Frequently, outstanding scientific mysteries are in-your-face types of problems that are very easy to enunciate. What is consciousness exactly? Or dark energy? Or dark matter? But then there are times when even appreciating the fact that there's a mystery requires a little bit of reflection. Duke University neuroscientist Jennifer Groh's research often falls into this second category. For some time now, Jennifer has been preoccupied with trying to appreciate just how the brain combines all of the very different sensory information that it's constantly processing in order to produce a coherent, seamless, integrated picture of the world around us. Well, you might say, it just does. Which is true, of course, but hardly an explanation. I'd like to talk about your your beginnings vis-a-vis science. Right. Uh, not even necessarily vis-a-vis neuroscience. I want to get there eventually. Mm-hmm. But just um, in terms of your, your interest in science, was this something that you always had when you were six years old? You said, I'm going to be a scientist, or, or did it work out differently for you? I can trace it back to about age 12. Um, and I... Uh, I remember watching a program on NOVA about the brain, and it was one of those sort of typical, probably now we would look back on it and say kind of a little bit cheesy, you know, thing with three-dimensional views of neurons and little twinkling lights traveling along the, um, the axons of the neurons, and right. I, just, I just remember thinking that's really cool, and that's what I want to do. So, it was, so, so the, the cool factor wasn't just scientific, it was neuroscience in particular. It was that... neuroscience in particular, yeah. Now, I, but I mistrusted that. Um, I thought, well, that's fine, but, you know, I'm only 12. Um, I mean, or when I got to college, I thought, I was only 12 when I developed this interest. Let's make sure that I try other things. And um, I was ready to change my mind if something else came along. So did you actively try things? You went to, as an undergraduate, <coughs> you, mm-hmm. you went to Princeton, right? I did, uh-huh. and, and And you were already, you were in a neuroscience-oriented program right from, from, from the get biology, presumably. Well, actually, the biology program was a little bit more broad than that. And I, um, so at Princeton, everyone does a, a senior thesis. And so you, you, get, you can get started on this, um, you know, well before your senior year. And I got really interested in behavioral ecology, Hmm. which is um, how animal behavior um, relates to the ecological constraints that the animals are operating under. And I got involved in a project studying wild horses. um, 
and looking at how, uh, you know, what behavioral strategies they employ to, you know, enhance their ability to survive and reproduce. So what, 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 are some, what are some of those? Well, I was looking at, um, so horses, like most animals, have an equal sex ratio at birth. So there's an equal number of males and females. Um, but they, the social structure is that um, there's usually one male associated with a group of females. Mm. So by the time they get to adulthood, that's the sort of social unit. Um, and that means that there's some males that are left out. You'd think, yeah. Yeah, and so these are called the bachelor males. And I was interested in whether or not they were forming groups themselves, kind of fraternities of, right. you know, male horses. Um, and if they were doing that, what, um, what were the advantages that they were um, uh, obtaining by doing right. that? Uh, so and don't, of course, don't leave me in suspense. Okay, well, yeah. you know, I, I I didn't stay in the field, so I can't I can't say for sure answers. how it how it how it turned out after that. But uh, yeah, it looked like they were you know when they were in groups, they were able to go to parts of the environment where the food was better, um, and ho maybe hold their own a little bit more against the the um, the harem stallions is what the groups with one male and multiple females is called. Um, so they were able to sort of hold their own against these stronger males um, a little bit more uh, successfully when they were congregating in groups. Did they ever take on the, 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 these harem stallions? Did they ever think, you know, there are 10 of us and there's only one guy with, with all the babes, we can, we can push, them out, push them away? <laughs> if they did, I didn't see it. They huh. probably do because sometimes there's turnover and you'll, you know, you'll find that, hey, a male that used to be um, in charge of this group Right. Um, is no longer uh, in his position, and somebody else has come in. Huh. I shouldn't say they're really in charge. There's, um, you know, it's one male, multiple females, but it looks, uh, it also looks like the females are, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're sort of driving the show. They're sort of deciding where to go, what to eat, um, and the male is sort of tagging along and just trying to keep the other males away. Sure. Well, that's a full-time job, I can imagine, given yeah. the circumstances. Yeah. So, so this was a real interest of yours, this behavioral ecology, or, or one aspect of behavioral ecology. But then at some point you said, ah, this is interesting, but I'd kind of rather go back to neuroscience. So, so tell me That's how that right. worked. Well, so I, um, you know, doing that kind of field work is really hard. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're camping on a barrier island, you're living in tents, you're um, spending 10, 12 hours a day out in the hot sun. Um, where were you, by the way? Where, where, where did all this happen? This was on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Wow. And so these, these wild horses are just <coughs> are there on the outer bank? Yeah, there's about 100 uh, wild horses on this particular island. Cool. They've been there since, um, uh, since uh, Spanish galleons were shipwrecked. Really? That's where they came from? That's where they came from. That's so cool. It's really cool. And, they're, and it's beautiful out there. But, you know, I would be sitting there and, I, you know, I'd have my little stool, I'd have my little notebook, and I'd be taking notes. And between taking notes, I'd be, like, looking down at my legs and just picking the ticks off. <laughs> <laughs> That's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought, uh, oh. <laughs> hmm, you know, the brain's really cool. <laughs> I think I'll go back to that. <laughs> right. So it was really the, the whole tick motivation was, was a large part of it. That was part of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So you went back to neuroscience. Um, and at the time, did you have a particular inclination or orientation vis-a-vis -vis neuroscience? Were you thinking this aspect or that aspect, or just this whole notion of the brain being fascinating? So as it happens, the first things that I learned about were the things that really grabbed my attention. 
but because they were first, I didn't realize that I wasn't going to be equally interested in, in other topics. So I, I, I sort of circled around and, and uh, tried a few things and then came back to the things that I was um, uh, first interested in. And, the, and those concerned um, how, uh, how space is represented in the brain, um, how we know where uh, stimuli are located, how we reconcile um, information about where visual stimuli are located with information about where sounds are located, with information about where things that are touching you on the body are located. How does your brain put together those different kinds of information um, to give you a sense of, hey, you're in one world. You know, you're, you're moving around through one environment and uh, it doesn't matter what's the underlying uh, cause of being able to detect um, certain kinds of, of information. Right. And this brings us right up to <coughs> Making Space, which mm -hmm. is your recently released book, but my understanding is based upon, uh, to a large extent, courses that you've also been teaching mm -hmm. uh, for some time here at Duke. Is that, is that that's a fair? That's right, yeah. So I teach, um, I teach about perception um, and the neural basis of perception, and I focus on uh, the spatial aspects of perception. So one of the things that I, I, I really enjoyed about your book is that it actually has all sorts of scientific detail in it. And I don't want to scare anybody away because it is something which is written, as I understand it, deliberately for a general audience. And yet it manages to do more than just talk about high-level things in terms of words, which is uh, what, I, what I expected. And when I picked up the book, my reaction was, oh, this is actually more complicated. It's written in a very accessible way. It's, there are no equations in it or anything like that, um, which sometimes makes things less accessible, but that's a, <laughs> that's a whole separate conversation. But, um, but it, it, um, it deliberately causes people, at least it caused me, I can't speak for anyone else, to recognize that there are all sorts of things that I had previously not thought about. So it made me feel... Um, a little bit stupid, and maybe this is <laughs> that's my masochistic side of me. I, I, I actually find that quite intriguing. So let me give you an example of the sorts of um, reactions that I had, a more concrete example, and then ask you if that's, that's what you were going for when you were writing the book. So for example, right at the very beginning, there's this idea of how do we see things? Well, we have photoreceptors in the eyes, right? Um, and that's about as much as I had thought of this. <clears throat> Excuse me, I thought, well, of course, we have photoreceptors in the eyes because that's why we have eyes, and eyes work, and we can see, and so, yeah, light comes in, and it pinches on, on, on our eyes, and I just thought about it kind of like these, um, um, well, you have photoreceptors in all sorts of places, right? And somehow that um, those, the light, those photons come in, and it, it, it gets converted to a current, and it goes to the brain, whatever, and we see. Um, and I hadn't really paid very much attention at all. Um, I shouldn't even put any qualifiers in there. I hadn't paid any attention whatsoever to any of the little intermediate processes that go on. So you talk about how a photon comes in, and at the biomolecular level, there's this rotation. It changes some molecule, which fits into something else. And so you start actually looking at it in terms of carbon bonds and breaking carbon bonds and rotating and turning in and fitting into something else. Um, which had never even entered my, my consciousness whatsoever. Um, 
And then you say, okay, now we understand some of the, uh, the organic chemistry and the biology that goes along with this. Well, how do we actually get, get an electromagnetic signal that comes out of that? How does that work? Um, and, and so this notion of taking a process that you kind of wave your hands at and say, yeah, yeah, you have a photoreceptor, which tautologically means it registers light to the brain, right? It doesn't actually tell you anything. And then you start breaking it into these components of what is actually going on physiologically, biochemically, how does that actually work? Um, that does two things. First of all, it gives you information of how something works, and it even makes you appreciate the fact that you had taken all this stuff for granted. You hadn't even thought about it. The in these intermediate stages are, they exist, and they're really important to figure out. Is that the sort of thing you were going for? Yeah, and, and a lot of, uh, when I was writing the book, I, um, I discovered things like that um, for myself. So I, that particular process was familiar to me. But the processes that lead to that were not so familiar to me. Like, I had never thought about how essential it is that the photoreceptors be lining the back of the eye as opposed mm. to being somewhere else. And that without that sort of physical structure of the photoreceptors being at the back and there being a small aperture at the front of the eye, um, there wouldn't be image formation, that, that the light reaching a particular photoreceptor right. would be coming from you know, willy-nilly from all over the world. Right. And, and, and then there are aspects of historical aspects. You talk about what Kepler did, and you talk about what Helmholtz did, and so mm -hmm. forth. Did you learn some of this as you went, or did you yeah. have a clear sense? Because that's not normally taught, I would think, in, in undergraduate or, or graduate-level science programs. I mean, a lot of the historical stuff was really interesting for me. Because um, when I always thought Kepler, it was like, okay, you found out that the orbits were elliptical, and, and that was a big deal, but that was kind of all I thought with this guy. <laughs> That's right. But it turns out he did a heck of a lot more than that. He did a heck of a lot more, and I didn't know any of that either, and it was in trying to figure out how did, you know, how did this knowledge come about that I, that I learned more about that. And mm -hmm. I thought it was intriguing that um, you know, Kepler did all this work on optics because he already knew about the, the elliptical orbits, but realized he was going to have sort of a, a political problem in pushing that view. Hmm. Um, that he, he recognized that it was maybe going to be controversial. And he essentially needed to get tenure. Um, he needed to keep his job, and so he needed to produce something. So he did this sort of optics as kind of a side project um, to, you know, to establish um, his, his credentials. And, no kidding. Yeah. So that was a deliberate tactical effort for him. You know, so the historians say, I, I, um, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to know for sure what someone was thinking, but, um, but it seemed that, sure. you know, he made that initial discovery and then he needed to, uh, um, to sort of fill out his... Right. Justify his credentials. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, and he recognized that, that if you couldn't, that unless you understood what the eyes were telling you about where things were, that you couldn't really be sure that the right, measurements you're making them. in astronomy were, were accurate. Huh. So this was some meta-level justification for, uh, for, the, for these measurements, for this particular theory, the elliptical planet theory, because after all, your eyes could deceive you. So exactly. first he had to show how vision works. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a strange way of doing things, but, uh, but impressive, yeah. um, obviously, nonetheless. Um, so, so let's let's get to some of the uh, the ideas behind making space. Mm -hmm. And you talk specifically about um, 
three different systems, as it were, and how they may be integrated and how they work, namely the vision system and, and, and touch, which is what somatosensory, is that what it's called? Yeah, like yeah, somato meaning body, so anything that's connected to the body is lumped under that heading. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, an auditory and, and, mm -hmm. and how we hear. So, mm -hmm. so now I'm going to ask you to hold forth for a little bit okay. and, and, and talk about all of that. Okay. Well, so the question that um, I've been really interested in um, in terms of the research that I do in my laboratory centers on something that also has its roots in astronomy, and that is frames of reference. Hmm. So um, in, in astronomy, um, Ptolemy's idea of how to think about the, the motion of planetary bodies was, hey, the Earth is the center and everything rotates around the Earth and, you know, sometimes those paths are kind of complicated and strange, but the Earth is the center. And, um, well, it turns out that if you treat the Sun as the center, then um, a lot of these um, uh, um, orbits become much more regular and sensible. So um, you can see that the Earth is going around the Sun and that the other planets are also going around the Sun. Um, and so the motion of the planets relative to the Earth is complicated, but the motion of the planets relative to the Sun is straightforward. So that's an example of how choosing a different um, center of your frame of reference can, can really change the way you're looking at, um, uh, at various different kinds of information. Um, so the problem for the brain is um, more um, local um, and uh, specific, and that is that the visual system, these, these photoreceptors, are giving you a representation of where visual information is, where objects are uh, in the world. Um, and that frame of reference depends on where the stimuli are with respect to the array of photoreceptors. So it depends on where it is with respect to the eyes. Well, we can move our eyes. <laughs> and, we, and we do, and we move them a lot, and we move them really fast. So uh, we move our eyes uh, about three times per second, and at a speed of about 500 degrees per second. So that means that um, if you were to allow the eyes to sort of continue moving, um, they'd be able to rotate one and a half times around um, in, in the space of a second. And they, you know, so they don't move quite that far, but, but they're, they're but they moving, could, yeah. but well, they could. I mean, if you, you know. Yeah, if you imagine So if you imagine that. So that's a lot of, of eyes moving around. So the brain has to, has to deal with this. It has to um, compensate for these eye movements. It has to assemble the snapshots that are taken um, by the photoreceptor array um, at each of the different positions that your eyes might be looking. And that's just within vision. Um, if you then extend this problem um, to include some of these other senses, <clears throat> the auditory system, sounds are not affected by how the eyes are moving. So the auditory system is using a, a different frame of reference for figuring out where, where the sounds are located. And this frame of reference is based on uh, subtle cues um, that are different across the two ears. So a sound located off to this side will arrive in this ear first, and it will be slightly louder in this ear. Um, and the brain is comparing the, the signals arriving in this ear with the signals arriving in this ear to compute, okay, what's the angle that that sound is coming from? Right. And the productivity is, at least the, the ability to process these things uh, is different because the phenomenon is different, the, the, the sound is different than light, our, our, our biological systems are different. You point out this one great example, um, which in fact we had the other day, which is trying to 
locate where a smoke detector beep is actually coming from. Yes. And it's, it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. Uh, and, that, uh, and, and you talk about that explicitly in terms of why it's hard and what the brain is doing and, and, and how it's different necessarily, obviously, from locating things visually and, and so forth. Right. Um, anyway, sorry, just to... Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. It's a, it's a frustrating problem for all of us to find these smoke detector beeps. Um, so, the, um, so the auditory system is, is um, computing sound location based on cues that are fundamentally anchored to the head, and the visual system is computing visual locations based on cues that are fundamentally anchored to the orientation of the eyes. So every time your eyes move, you're yanking your visual scene around to some new position with respect to your auditory scene. <laughs> so I've been really interested in how does the brain, you know, fix that? How does the brain put these two signals into a common frame of reference so that you can do things like use lip reading cues to help you understand what someone is saying? So if you don't correctly associate the lips of the person who is speaking, with the sound of that person speaking, then uh, you, can't, you can't make use of that um, supplementary information. How often does that happen, by the way? Because I'm starting to pay attention to these things just, just anecdotally. And uh, I, I have noticed that if I'm, uh, if I'm not actually watching somebody, or, or sometimes on a film, if you're not actually looking, <coughs> if you're overhearing something, it's harder to, to, to tell what people are saying. Is that very common that people are doing that? I it's, certainly find that. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I really like talking to people in person or video calls on Skype or, or FaceTime, because then I get the lip reading cues. Hmm. And I don't have any known um, hearing deficit, so I think this is something that it's fairly common. It's fairly common, and we all certainly lose hearing as we age, and it, I think using the lip-reading cues is more and more important. See, th that right there, when you were uh, talking about not only integrating these two completely different systems, but just this idea of how rapidly your eyes are moving, as you're moving around, not, not just as the eyes are moving, but as we're moving through space, as we're moving our heads, uh, all of a sudden you start seeing the complexity and, and, and the, the mind-boggling structure that must necessarily exist to compensate as we're doing the most normal things that we can possibly imagine. It's this constant sense of realizing, oh my, this is really complicated. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that. You're just walking around, you think, yeah, sure, my eyes work and so forth. But it's, when you look at it from a system perspective, let alone integrating it with, with these other systems, I mean, that makes it even more complicated. But it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, it's just... It's really amazing. It's both complicated and very logical. Hmm. And I think that was something that I was hoping to convey in the book, is that um, this isn't really a mystical problem. This is something that we can reason about. We right. can think about what's the physics. We can think about what are the biological sensors. And then we can say, okay, well, this is going to be a problem that we know that the brain has to solve. Right. And then we can think about um, imagining um, what kind of neural circuits might be accomplishing those tasks. And I think we can make quite a bit of progress. It's, it's, um, it isn't all kind of just like a hand wavy, sure. and then a miracle occurs. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, at least... Well, maybe the unresolved problems are... Sure. Maybe yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of miracles, but not everything is a miracle. <laughs> um, so I, I want to also get to, uh, to touch a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing that struck me, and, and this is probably just a sign of my ignorance, but, but I'm guessing other people have um, similar levels of ignorance, 
is that you call some things neurons that aren't in the brain. So mm -hmm. there's this whole sensory re mm -hmm. receptor neurons. Mm -hmm. um, and these are the things that are obviously detecting stuff and sending signals and all the rest of that. But mm -hmm. even that is something that took me aback a little bit. I thought, well, hang on a minute. How can I have a neuron in my arm? Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's not where... Is, is, that a, is that, again, is that a, something that... Um, that people are commonly confused about or taken aback with when they first hear this idea? Um, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I don't think it's come up. Um, but yes, we do call anything that is um, uh, conveying information through electrical signaling, um, we call a neuron. Uh, although I'm saying that now and I'm wondering, so some types of glia do also have electrical signaling. So it may not be a, a completely um, sure, but sharp distinction, but certainly we're, we call the, the the, the things in your arm that are responding to touch and that are controlling the muscles, um, those we call neurons as well. Okay. So tell me, tell me a little bit about touch as well. You talked and go into as much detail as you want, obviously backing up the vision and auditory stuff, but sure. just to, to fill out the picture of these different systems and frames of reference and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the frame of reference problem for touch and its integration with vision is even more complicated because there are so many more degrees of freedom. So with vision and hearing, you've only got one degree of freedom. You've got the motion of the eyes with respect to the head. But for integrating touch into this, you know, um, if I um, hear a buzzing sound and then feel a bee stinging my hand, um, you know, that could be here, it could be here, it could be here, it could be anywhere. Um, and so you have to, uh, the brain has to sort of know what location on the body surface was stung by the bee, and then also know, okay, what's the posture of my wrist? What's the posture of my elbow and my shoulder and my head? And then my eyes with respect to all of that. Wow. And that's just to be able to tell that, uh, you know, to be able to, to uh, say, okay, this image of the bee is coming from the same location where I'm feeling the, the sting. And it gives you a sense of how much processing power has to be involved in not only all of these systems individually, but integrating them together. Right. Um, and you, you start And it off happens fast, too, because you're, you know, when you get stung by a bee, you're immediately like dealing with it. You're not, yeah. you're not thinking it through. And you, you start off the book with this joke or pseudo-joke or whatever about how 90% of... Uh, um, of neural activity, I don't know exactly how you say it. I should probably ask you because I'm sitting across <laughs> from you. Uh, but 90% 90, 90 of our brain is involved in figuring out where things are. Right. Um, and then you go on to say, actually, you don't know that for a fact. But um, but then you later on you move towards why you think um, there's so much of the brain that's actually involved and what the implications of that are. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly the idea behind this is. It, these are very, very complicated systems, and, and I want to get to this a little bit later, but the suspicion is that from an evolutionary perspective, since so much of our, of our mental activity goes into these systems, they do more than just locating things in space. Is that a fair way of looking at yeah, it? Yeah, that's a very good way of looking at it. Yeah, so you know, the idea that we only use 10% of our brains, none of us know <laughs> where that number comes from. So it's kind of a running joke in neuroscience to say, all right, well, I'm going to just throw a number out there <laughs> and say this is, you know, how much of your brain is, is involved with this, that, or the other thing. But, um, but I'm half serious, um, or maybe a little bit more than half serious, um, because when you look at it, um, 
there's an awful lot of the brain that has been identified as carrying some kind of information that's relevant to these kinds of processes that we're talking about. There's a lot of the brain that responds to visual information, a lot responds to sound, a lot responds to touch. Um, there's a lot that's involved in, in controlling movements, and movements are essential to understanding how to, to combine information across these different sensory systems. And, you know, if you were to say, okay, well, all of that, those brain structures are, you know, really just doing those things, that that's their job is to work on these, these spatial processing, uh, sensory and motor control issues, there wouldn't be that much left for doing the things that we think about when we think about, like, what makes us um, smart? You know, what, what's, you know, where is the, how come there isn't, how come most of the brain isn't doing language, for example? Right. Um, well, it turns out that if you look at areas of the brain that seem to be involved in language or memory or attention or, you know, planning or motivation or things like that that can also be looked at, there's a lot of overlap between sure. the structures that are implicated in those processes and the structures that are implicated in sensory and motor um, processing. And this is all part of your <clears throat> of a grand thesis that that, that I want to I want to return to later um, because it, it really is fascinating and there's all sorts of interesting data that you at least tantalize us with a little bit and towards towards the end of your book. But before I do, I, I want to ask one question about another sense that I don't think you mention, um, that most people don't mention, but I just thought I'd ask, is the sense of smell. Mm -hmm. So um, when I thought about this, I thought, can I actually, do I localize smell at all? Uh, and I think a little bit, I mean, we, but not very well, typically. So has there been much work done on that? Do you do any work on that? Does anybody care about whether or not you can Localize. First of all, do we localize yeah. smell, or do we just think there's a bad smell? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, humans, I think, are fairly poor at localizing smell. Right. But smell is a very spatial sense for some other animals. Sure, dogs, presumably, <clears throat> and others. Yeah, and I think they do it um, in a way that I think is very interesting and has parallels. And I think they do it in a way that's very interesting and has parallels with, uh, with what we do in vision. So we have to con constantly sort of take new samples as we, you know, when we move our eyes around, we're taking a new sample and we're stitching those samples together. What I imagine a dog does is they take a sample here, then they move to some other location, they take a sample there, they move to some other location, they take a sample there, and it's by integrating and comparing those different samples that they're able to say, okay, there's a gradient of smell here, it was fainter over here, it's stronger over here, I'm going to keep going that direction. That's a process that you can see the dogs doing, but I don't think we have much sort of personal experience um, uh, you know, implementing ourselves, mainly because we habituate to smell so rapidly. Mm. So the samples that we take here versus over on the other side of the room, they're so contaminated by habituation, by a decrement in, in our sensitivity to a smell after we've first experienced it, that it's very hard for us to make those comparisons. And do people actually work on, on 
smells in dogs and smells in humans? And I assume so, but I don't know much about it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I'm telling you sort of like my gut okay. impression from, from watching, uh, okay. watching dogs. So there's no established understanding that these are fringe guys, that the, they're the smell systems guys, and you know, we keep away from them. And, well, you know, I... I <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, we can talk about sociology and science later. Um, so, uh, so the there are all these systems, and these systems are incredibly complicated and yet logical, mm -hmm. as, as as you're saying, uh, and integrated in a in this remarkable way that um, that we do in the brain. But there's also this idea of how they're represented in the brain, and and this brings brings us to this notion of brain maps and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So why don't mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? As well. Yeah. So um, so to answer that question, I have to go back to uh, kind of how I got interested in this problem, and um, so I got interested in how auditory information and visual information can be put into a common reference frame, and very quickly you have to start thinking about how are the neurons actually representing information about where stimuli are located. So with the visual system you've got this array of, of photoreceptors and uh, location of activation in this photoreceptor array corresponds to the location of the stimulus in the world. So that's a kind of a map. It's, you can also think of it as a, as a kind of a photograph or a snapshot or something, but, but we talk about it as a map of, you know, neurons over here are active means a stimulus is located over here. Um, in the auditory system, there was some information about how the neurons represent sound location, um, but, it, but it wasn't completely clear um, what, what the representations are. And you can't infer it from first principles. So in the visual system, you can infer it from, from just simply knowing about the, the structures of the eye and the optics and the way light travels and what's going to happen. But with the auditory system, figuring out where sounds are located is intrinsically a computation that the brain has to be performing by comparing the, the two ears. So um, as I started trying to build models of how you might convert auditory signals from an original head based frame of reference into an eye-based frame of reference for communication with the visual system, I realized that um, how that computation might unfold would be different depending on whether or not there's a map for sound location versus if sound location is represented in a different way, which uh, we have come to call a meter for sound location. What I mean by that is that instead of the identity of which neurons are active, signifying where the, the sound is coming from, you could also imagine doing it with the amount of activity in a population of neurons, signaling whether or not the sound is more over to this side or more over to this side. So that would be location independent in, in the brain then, presumably, in terms of those neurons. When That's you talk right. About the meter idea. Yeah, so where, you know, uh, which neurons are active isn't so much the important factor, but more well, how vigorously are they responding? Mm. So you could imagine left-preferring neurons and right-preferring neurons and the, the ratio of activity in those two pools telling you, well, is it, is it straight ahead? Well, you know, if those two pools are equally active, that's going to say it's straight ahead. If the left ones are more active, that's going to say it's more off to the left. If the right ones are more active, it's going to be more off to the right. And it appears that in humans and monkeys and some other uh, mammals, it's, that's exactly the kind of code that seems to emerge 
uh, from these uh, comparisons across the two years. Um, so uh, that's actually kind of a cool finding because it suggests a, a simpler way of converting auditory signals into an eye-centered frame of reference than would have been the case if it was a map. Hmm. And that relates to um, what exactly the brain has to do. So what the brain has to do to convert something from a head-based frame of reference to an eye-based frame of reference is it has to know where the eyes are and it has to essentially subtract the eye um, the eye with respect to head sure. signal from... So it's a filter, basically. It's a filter, yeah. right. And so, you know, the mathematics of how you accomplish this is just really easy if you're, if you're sort of representing both where's the sound and where are the eyes in a common sort of level of activity-based way. You can sort of subtract the signal that corresponds to the eye position from the signal that corresponds to the sound location with respect to the head, and what you're left after you subtract is the sound with respect to the eyes. So here's what I always think about with these things that it confuses me, is that, so I've got all these different neurons in my brain, and they're doing, they're doing these things, and presumably they're doing them all the time, or at least much of the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a sound, where's that coming from? But that's not the only thing going on in my brain, mm -hmm. and there are all sorts of things going on. I might be thinking about an ice cream cone, or I might be wondering what time it is, or I might be doing all these things, and, and these, uh, how sure am I that um, there's a, there's a, if at all, that there's a one-to-one -one functional map between these neurons and what it is that they're doing? I mean, these, these neurons might wind up be doing seven or eight different things at the same time, so that it, it, it could get extremely complicated. Right. That's, uh, that's a great question, and we've been really grappling with that lately. Um, uh, this part is not in the book, but it's, it's um, uh, some experiments we've been uh, we've been doing lately to try to figure out, well, our neurons may be switching back and forth between different roles. Um, so an experiment we're working on right now involves presenting um, two sounds at the same time, and we're trying to tell whether or not the neurons are effectively multiplexing right. signals related to those two sounds. Do they alternate back and forth between now I'm coding this sound, now I'm coding that sound? And ultimately what you're getting at is, well, you know, are they doing, are they also maybe switching back and forth between dealing with sound and maybe um, spending part of their time dealing with, say, auditory imagery or something that's more of a cognitive thought-based role that might use the same neural infrastructure. And of course, if they are doing such a thing, then you need a whole other level of explanation as to when it switches on, when it switches off, when it does. You need some sort of mini central processing unit to be able to structurally tell them when, the, when they're doing all these things. That's right, that's right. But something like this um, might be the explanation, might be part of the explanation for why you see so much overlap between the areas of the brain that are doing sensory and motor signals and the areas that are doing attention and, and memory and, and language related. You know, maybe they're, um, you know, it's possible that it's different neurons but co-located, but it's also possible that it's a common population of neurons and some of the time they're doing one thing and some of the time they're doing something else. Wow, that's really messy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we can clean up part of it, and then we just—it just you know—we peel back the layers, and there's more. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm more that needs to be, you know, figured out. I, I'm sure f you know, this is obviously second nature to you, but again, it just emphasizes to me personally 
there's this consistent recognition of how incredibly complicated this process is. These things that I had completely taken for granted. I think, wow, that's because you mentioned this in the book. Um, you talk about um, the importance of thinking about how you can actually build something, and and many people. Um, have this idea that, that you can't really understand something until you can imagine how you go ahead and build it yourself. So if you put yourself in the perspective of, okay, let's assume I can somehow manipulate all these things and put them together, how would I put them together? How would I build it in principle? Um, and the more you start looking at this, at least for me, and asking these questions, the more uh, I start realizing how incredibly difficult it would be just in principle to be able to build something like that, build these structures. Um, let me ask you, um, some other questions related to this idea of maps. So let's let's put away this incredibly uh, fascinating but complicated auditory business with mm -hmm. these two different maps and the meter thing, and let's move to vision for a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and 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 I want to reference um, something which came up recently, which was the the 2014 uh, Nobel Prize in mm -hmm. Physiology. So. Um, I can imagine someone saying, okay, well, I've heard that th this guy, John O'Keefe, and, and two other people uh, won, the, won the recent Nobel Prize for this GPS system, which mm -hmm. has to do with this mapping system in the, in the head, as I understand it. So what's that all about, and how does that relate to the sorts of things you're telling me about? Right. So um, it takes it to, uh, um, this takes us to a level of spatial processing that is sort of transcending what's in the here and now and is more about how you move through the world and how you navigate and go from one place to another. And um, an area of the brain that seems to be involved in that is the hippocampus and some associated structures that we put under the heading of uh, the hippocampal complex. Um, and uh, what was known about the hippocampus um, dating back from the 1950s is that it was critically important for memory. And the way this was um, uh, first discovered was, um, uh, was based on a famous patient uh, called H.M. And H.M., uh, um, so H.M. had been, let me rewind a little bit. Rewind, we've already um, rewound, boom. Okay. So H.M., uh, his real name was Henry Molaison, and he had had a bicycle accident as a child and had developed intractable epilepsy. Why was he just called H.M., by the way? Because I don't think anybody ever used his full name. It was always H.M., H.M., H.M. Right. Was so, that for identity purposes? Yeah, so that's, um, we now no longer identify um, patients uh, or subjects at all in, uh, in research publications, but uh, originally the idea was, well, you, you make it anonymous, but you give some signifier so that you can kind of keep refer track of, it. you know, yeah. refer to it and, and keep track of, you know, multiple papers that are based on, potentially on the same subject. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. He had a bicycle accident. So he had a bicycle accident, um, and he developed epi epilepsy, and he had surgery to treat the, um, treat the epilepsy by removing the locus of the seizures, and the surgeon removed um, the hippocampus on both sides. And uh, the case became um, even more tragic after that because what happened was H.M. Uh, was no longer able to form any new memories of episodes that had occurred in his life after that point. Uh, he did retain some kinds of memory, but he wasn't able to remember things like, um, oh yeah, I went to the grocery store yesterday. I mean, that very simple kind of memory he was no longer able to form. 
Um, so it was clear based on his case that the hippocampus was critically important for memory. What O'Keefe and his colleagues discovered in animals was that if you measure the activity of neurons in the hippocampus, what they seem to be doing is uh, responding selectively when the rat is in a particular location in the environment. So some neurons respond when the rat is here, other neurons respond when the rat is located over here, um, and there's neurons that respond when the rat is in any different possible position. There's some neurons in the hippocampus that are, that are active for it and are selective for the rat being in that position. So this seemed kind of really intriguing because you've got here, on the one hand, you've got the lesion data in humans and replicated in animals that if you eliminate this structure, the most obvious thing that you see is a profound impairment in memory. And on the physiology side, if you look at what signals are present, the, a really obvious thing is that the neurons are sensitive to where you are in the environment. And um, so uh, there was subsequent work um, from the Mosers who shared in the Nobel Prize showing that there are other populations of neurons that are, uh, seem to be carrying signals that relate to um, your progress moving throughout, throughout the environment. So there are neurons that, that seem to signal, okay, well, you've, you've gone so many steps in this direction, and then another, another so many steps, and another so many steps. So it's kind of a grid-like representation of, of how far you've gone. Um, <clears throat> did you have to be familiar with that particular environment? Did the rat have to be familiar with that particular environment? If you put the rat in a completely new environment, does it take a while for it to, to do this sort of stuff? If you put the rat in a completely new environment, the cells immediately have, have what's called these place fields. But the place fields that they have are unrelated to the ones that they had in the previous environment where you tested them. So if, if, if we had a rat here and it's running around in this you know, and we measure, okay, this neuron responds when it's rats over there, and this neuron responds when it's over here. We now take the rat into some other setting. Uh, both of those neurons will respond, but the relationship between the locations that this neuron is sensitive to and this neuron is sensitive to will be totally random and different. So it's, it's, they seem to be recruited for every setting, but it's a combinatoric process of, of representing what that environment is. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the bits in a digital code, right? I mean, they're, yeah. you know, they, they're on or off in all the different settings, but you know, the relative ordering might be totally different. Yeah, but how, how, does it, how does it decide when it goes to a, I can, I can understand if it's a familiar setting somehow, but yeah. once you move around to a completely new setting, it's never been before, mm -hmm. how, does it, how does that process work in terms of allocating neuron resources. So as, as best we can figure it, uh, it seems that the representation corresponds to your sense of where you are. I mean, I'm anthropomorphizing here, imagining myself as a rat, sure. but... Um, or, so, or imagining a rat as you. Or a rat as me, <laughs> either way. So, um, you know, if you, if, you put the, if you put the rat in a room and the room has very little in terms of you know, details or landmarks that give you a sense of orientation, but if it has a few of those things, uh, if you then, uh, if you take the rat out of the room and then you rotate the, the landmarks that are in that room, um, maybe disorient the rat a little bit um, by, uh, you know, covering, covering it up with a 
you know, covering its cage up with a, with a towel or something and spinning it around or something so that it comes, and then you bring it back into the room so it, it can't remember exactly how it got there. It's just in that room again. And um, what you find is that the, the representation of space in the hippocampus seems to shift to match those landmarks as if the rat, you know, thought that the, that the room had actually, you know, had not rotated but was in its original orientation. Um, so you can, you can kind of fool this, this representation sure. of space. How does it just, as you were talking, I was thinking, how, how would you neurologically interpret getting dizzy? Um, how would that how would that work, well, or what's going right. on? Right. Yeah. Well, so your vestibular system, your sense of balance, is right. critical for uh, is a critical component of all of this spatial integration, and in particular in navigating through the environment. Right. Um, so that system allows you to kind of monitor um, your linear motion, like you know, straightforward or to the left or to the right or backwards, um, and also your turns. Right. Um, so that's all part of what's getting getting assembled here. But to but to to go back to the Sorry. memory right. and location link in right. the hippocampus. So, so you got your uh, your lesion data telling you that there's a memory deficit. Your um, recording data uh, emphasizing that there's a lot of information about location in the environment. And so what what I think about this, and I'm not the first person to um, to draw this connection, um, is that location, your location in the world is one of the ways that you file information that's relevant. So, um, you know, when I'm here in my office, I'm, I want to be able to call up memories related to the projects that my students are working on. Um, you know, there's memories that are relevant because I'm here in this place. And, and we've all experienced that. When we go back to a particular place, you've mentioned an example of this in your book. I'm going to let you talk in a sec, but just, just to, to emphasize this, you go back to an old school, for example, where you haven't been for 25 years or something like that, and all of a sudden memories start coming, flooding back to you. I mean, this is a very common experience that most people have had, at least if you're old enough to, to <laughs> That's right. experience. That's right. When you go to a reunion of some kind, you know, things that you wouldn't be able to remember probably um, if you weren't back in that setting, seem accessible to you. Right. So that, you know, the brain doesn't, you don't have everything loaded into working memory all the time. You have to be able to kind of click on the file and, and open it. Right. And, and so, so there's a sense that, that uh, I, I, clicking on the file has something to do with, with this spatial context, with this uh, knowing where you are in a particular place, that there's a, there's a direct link or at least some link between the two. Right. Right, exactly. Uh, so I want to explore the link between memory and, and, and space a little bit more. Before I do, there was a thought that I had, um, which has to do again with these, with these maps, um, as I understand them, which is, is not very strong. But the idea that you have certain neurons that are firing in certain areas and that you're making, at least on the visual level, you're making this, um, uh, there's a correspondence between uh, the neurons that are firing in different places as you're as you're going from here to there, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and and there's a there's also a correspondence between a, a, a mental map of what's happening and different places in my in my leg in terms of different neurons, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
And so if I have different neurons that are being used to represent different uh, places in my leg as I'm touching different places in my leg, um, and then I think, okay, what happens uh, in terms of phantom pain? What happens mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, for people uh, for whom the actual objective uh, object has been removed, mm -hmm. and they still feel this, this type of... Um, um, they still feel this because that map still exists at some level, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. right? um, and sometimes this map that exists, according to what I recall you saying, gets spontaneously activated somehow. Right. And so that's this, this idea that even though the, the receptors are no longer there because the leg is no longer there, um, there's still this map that's in place in the head and, and uh, the head is the, my layman's term for mm -hmm. the brain, of uh -huh. course. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it, it works. In there. Uh, <laughs> these, so these, these neurons that represent this, uh, what's going on in, on, on my leg, somehow spontaneously fire. Right. Okay. And, and thus, if I'm an amputee, I may feel phantom pain that corresponds to that. So I have two questions that, that, mm -hmm. that are linked to that. My first question is, spontaneously fire means you don't understand what's going on, it seems. Uh, Correct. <laughs> that's a really good question. <laughs> so that's one of the things that like you dig a little bit and it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's our hand wavy thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the connections to any brain area come from a lot of different places. And only some of those connections are going to have been disrupted by the loss of the, of the limb. And so you could imagine that maybe that spontaneous activity occurs uh, because of the inputs that, that still exist that are coming from other places. Um, you could also imagine that it really is sort of spontaneous, that the, um, that the electrical mechanisms within the neuron, uh, you know, sometimes you get, you know, just by random chance, maybe you get close enough to, um, uh, to the threshold for producing a spike of electrical signals that it just happens without there being any particular input. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't like that just by random chance. Again. Yeah. That's just another way of fastly yeah. saying spontaneous, so we don't know what's going on. Right, so, so you, uh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, so really the difference is, well, we don't know whether or not it is spontaneous, like coming from within the neuron, or spontaneous coming from sources that we're not measuring. Okay. Um, and... My second question is, I've heard about this thing called plasticity and neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. So, um, and th this is a more general, this, uh, think about it with respect to this particular example, but it's more general. We're talking about neurons here and neurons there, and they do this and they do that. And, and my assumption is that I have certain neurons dedicated for certain tasks. Uh, with all these mental maps and with all this and with all that, and granted, they could be it could be much more complicated than that because my same neuron, as we talked about earlier, might be involved, in fact, in four different things or right. ten different things or something. But right. even forgetting about that, the assumption is that that neuron is dedicated uh, for for forever uh, to to those particular tasks. But my understanding is that that's actually not the way it works either. Is that neurons can change in their in their dedication? So how do you, how does that get incorporated in all of this. Well, that really is a miracle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's, it, it, uh, and it's a profound one. So, um, yes, the, the way you, your brain is wired up is probably quite different from the way my brain is wired up, and yet we're able to do some of the same things. You know, you can walk, I can walk, you can talk, I can talk. 
we're, we're able to do that based on you know, plasticity that refines these connections. And I think one of the things that's been really exciting in brain science is the discovery that we have even more plasticity than we probably appreciated. And there's a lot of, um, we have a, a, a tremendous ability to recover from, uh, from deficits and from changes to our nervous system. And for me, the great example of this is the cochlear implant. Um, so this is a device for people with hearing loss um, that involves placing an array of electrodes in the cochlea, which is where the, um, the equivalent of the photoreceptors, um, these are hair cells in the cochlea. So they are responsible for transducing um, the physical vibrations that, um, that make up sound waves. They're responsible for transducing those into electrical signals. And if you have hearing loss that um, impairs that process, if those cells have died or something, um, then you can replace their action by electrically stimulating the nerve fibers that they, that they make contact with. Um, but you can't do it in anything remotely close to the way that the original hair cells would have, would have fired. I mean, there are you know, thousands upon thousands of these hair cells, and they're each making a unique set of connections. It turns out that you can do pretty well by putting in about eight electrodes, um, mm -hmm. and that patients who have uh, an electrical, an electrode array consisting of, of those eight electrodes can, um, can do pretty well at starting to understand speech. Um, and I've talked, to, um, I've talked to a friend who got one of these devices, and her experience of it was that it gradually began to actually sound like it had originally sounded. So she, she lost her hearing um, as an adult, and as she got this, um, got this prosthetic device, over time, her, her experience of sound became similar to what it had been when she was a child. And that's got to be all plasticity. Over that's got to be sure. the brain saying, well, I'm going to take this bizarre input and I'm just going to reroute things to make it sound kind of like it used to sound. And, and it's going to take a while because we're checking. There's some feedback. Is, it, is this working? Is this, is, are we getting closer right. and closer and closer? That's towards? right. That's right. And you need this feedback. And so one of the interesting things is, well, how do you get that feedback? And yeah. uh, so... <laughs> Um, so you get that feedback from vision because it has to be something outside the realm of hearing to, uh, to tell you this. So she um, tells me that um, one of the training strategies that she was told to do was to uh, read a book and listen to it on tape at the same time. So empirically people of course have realized this. So the people who were telling her to do this presumably are not necessarily neuroscientists. They're people who are just familiar with, with the mechanisms of how these things work and what patients have discovered and told right. them and so forth. And some logic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You're not going to be out of, out, of, out of a job anytime soon. I mean, there are, there are just a whole lot of things we don't understand about this. This is a really complicated system. That's really cool. Um, memory. Yes. Let's, let's move to this idea of space and location mm -hmm. and, and, and memory. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that everyone, no, I'll, I'll just retract that, maybe not everyone, but one of the things that has been around for a very, very long time um, 
is this connection between memory and space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as, as you know well, and as you cite in your book, um, the ancient Greeks had this mnemonic technique yep. of, of a memory palace. Mm-hmm. This, this notion that, uh, that we can actually remember things uh, if we put them in uh, more things in a clearer way, in a longer way, if we train our minds to be able to put them in a spatial context of right. going through a particular right. location, this palace, this memory palace. Yeah. Um, and there was a there was a book that came out not too long ago uh, that emphasized this. Well, maybe it was a long ago because I'm getting older. But anyway, it was it was called Moonwalking with Einstein. I don't know if you ever read it. By this I haven't read it, but I, the title sounds familiar. So it, it, the the basic premise of this is that uh, there's this guy who was a journalist and he, he covers these mental Olympics of these individuals who who have this incredibly prodigious memory. Um, and he assumes that they're just freaks of nature, and they say, uh, no, 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 in fact, um, anyone can learn this, and in fact, you can learn this, and if you want to, you can, uh, we can elevate you within the span of whatever it is, a year or two years, to the same level that we're at, and he's skeptical, and, and he embarks upon this journey, and lo and behold, he actually is able to do this by using these techniques and a compilation of these techniques. Um, of course, there are other techniques, but it's well known empirically that there is a very strong connection between uh, spatial representations and memory. Um, and we've talked a little bit about that, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about what you think is going on and why that's the case and what open questions there are as a result of that. Yeah, so I haven't read the book, but I think I've read a couple of articles um, about that uh, by this this person who did that, and I think it's really an amazing hmm. uh, process. Um, and it got me thinking, huh, I wonder if I could, you know, do that. I haven't actually gotten yes, around to trying it. Yes, you can. The answer is yes, yeah. you can. <laughs> um, yeah, so I occasionally try to um, try to use something like that and sort of, if I think I'm trying to, if I think I have a lot of things to remember that might be difficult, I might try to sort of push that information somewhere. Um, I often do it not by sort of visualizing a memory palace, but by using my hands. So for example, if I'm trying to remember something that I'm about to say, um, but I have to wait for somebody else uh, to finish, and I want to be able to use my mind to listen to what that person is saying, but I also want to be able to remember what I wanted to say next, I'll take the first letter of what it is I want to say, and I'll you know make that shape with my hands. Wow. And that way I can just sort of come back to it. So it's sort of stored. Um, but it's not as rude as like saying, hang on, let me write this down. <laughs> well, so the, 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 there's this idea, again, this idea of neurons being not necessarily in your, you use this as a big big neuron receptacle. You store it in your, in your, in your hand. Yeah, cool. yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, so uh, so I think it's a fascinating idea to to be able to do this um, by you know using your spatial infrastructure and sort of saying okay, well I'm going to deliberately take some pieces of information and try to you know try to put the memory of of um, you know the Queen of Spades um, and I'm going to visualize putting that on the top shelf in my kitchen. Um, I'm going to take the Jack of Diamonds and that's going to be put in the you know. Um, right next to the trash can or you know something like that to really sort of tie these things and form these associations in a sort of deliberate way to make use of this infrastructure right and 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 so the infrastructure again is this notion that there is some 
Um, we talked about the hippocampus before and so forth, but there is this deep and uh, there's this deep link, and maybe we don't even know how deep it really is, between spatial representations and and actually memory. Mm -hmm. um, and my understanding is that to you that's not only intriguing, but that's a sign that while maybe there are equally deep integrated links between not just, I mean that's enough, but not just spatial representations uh, and memory, but spatial representations and thought mm -hmm. writ large. Mm -hmm. that, in, that in fact, um, getting back to what you were saying, um, these these systems and their integration are so complex and so um, and so detailed and require so much power processing power as it were um, whether it's ninety percent or, or whatever it is yeah. um, that that's suggestive of the fact that there's a significant overlap between spatial stuff and things that we might not logically or immediately assume has to do with spatial stuff mm -hmm. and in fact that's integrated with thought, as best as we can tell, writ large. Most of the things we may be thinking about, or at least a good many of the things we may be thinking about, are somehow, in a way that we might not immediately perceive, tied to this notion of, of, of spatial systems and their integration. Right? Yeah. And it, so this comes back to um, evolution and how, did, how does the brain evolve? Like, how did we get to be so smart compared to, you know, jellyfish or, you know, primordial ancestors that clearly did not have the kind of cognitive abilities that we have. Right. And a general problem in evolution is to envision how simple events can, like a mutation of, a, of an individual gene can produce a, an organism that functions better than the you know, other organisms that don't have that mutation. Because usually when you tweak something, you make it worse. Right. Um, and Intermediate states um, are hard to envision in the course of, of evolution. Like, um, you know, having having hands with five fingers and opposable thumbs is very useful. Um, it would not be particularly useful to have like a stump of a thumb. And so, how do you get the, the whole, the whole thumb. thumb? Right. Um, so one thing that uh, that may be happening is that modules in the brain might be um, duplicated through a fairly simple set of mutations. So that you might take um, a structure that you have that's working and then maybe one small change means that, okay, now you have two of those. And then what could happen possibly is that, well, if you have two of them and one was sufficient, now you have an extra. So that the extra one can be used for something that you weren't originally doing. So you're experimenting, with it, as it were, with that with that extra one what, without damaging the existing system. Right, and because of plasticity, you can imagine, uh, you know, shaping that extra one to be doing something really quite different. Hmm. Um, but the thought is that perhaps you know there's still some history that uh, that that duplicated module has based on, you know, where it came from. That it would share some of the similar structures. Um, you know, the circuitry might look quite similar to, to what's present in the original area. Maybe it's getting some of the same kind of inputs, but it wouldn't be, um, but it wouldn't be doing the same exact things. It would be um, doing something similar, but on a different type of input. So it may be then that space is, um, that spatial processing, 
you know, originally arises as something that's essential for that first module to do, and that when it gets duplicated in that second module, you still have all this spatial infrastructure, only now you're going to use it to do things like um, think and maybe reason about sort of abstract concepts that, um, that might e easily be equatable with something spatial, um, but aren't in, in and of themselves spatial. Right. And this is an idea that, uh, I'm sort of elaborating on an idea that, um, that uh, came from work by George Lakoff and, and Mark Johnson, um, who noticed that um, there's a pattern to the metaphors we use in language. Um, so we talk about, um, I'm just noticing that there was yeah. sound. Shall I back up no, a little? You're great. We should okay. take you with us wherever we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson noticed that there's a pattern to the metaphors that people use. That, um, for example, you talk about uh, social relationships using spatial language. Uh, we might talk about um, being close to your close to your parents or having a distant relative. Um, so you're using language, I mean, to call that metaphor is, is sort of stretching the definition of, of metaphor that we all use and uh, learned in, in high school, but it, it's nevertheless a sort of metaphorical use of terminology that, that has a spatial meaning. So, so that's suggestive, but, but then you, you cite some examples of people, uh, as I understand it, um, who are who are actually using these linguistic metaphors, and then you're you're doing uh, some fMRI or I don't know what it is exactly, but you're actually scanning things. Right. And, and, right. And, and and it's there's a correspondence between what they're actually saying and what's going on in their in their brain in terms of the the touch systems or or whatever it is. Yeah. And that's just mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. So there's a, there's just a few of these studies out there, but they're really intriguing. So, for example, um, if you give um, subjects um, words that relate to actions that involve a particular part of the body, like kick involves your feet, lick involves your mouth, um, you see a pattern of activation, generally in the region of somatosensory and motor cortex, that roughly seems to correspond to um, the layout of the body map in those structures. So the, the activation that you see when you're uh, presenting words like kick, um, that tends to be more towards where the legs are, and words like lick tends to be more towards where the face, uh, the face is. And it's not a perfect correspondence, and these things are not, um, they're never, you know, as, as straightforward as, as one sure. might like, but it's a really fascinating observation that, um, you know, perhaps when you are thinking about something like that, what you're doing might be to sort of simulate some of the sensory and motor attributes that are related to that concept. And, but there is a correlation. It's, it's, I mean, when you say it's not perfect, there, there is some some sense of a rough correlation. There's a dis there's, it's clear that the areas of activation are different and that they are laid out in the order that, you, that the body is laid out. It's a little bit less clear whether or not they exactly map on to the, the, the particular sure. locus of the body. But, but a priori, if I know nothing about this, it's not surprising that they, they wouldn't be an exact match because these neurons are doing all these different things at the same time. That's so, right. So I wouldn't expect that anyway, that, right. that, that, that there would be to, an exact To match. demand that it be an exact match would probably be putting too much, uh, 
too, too strict a criteria. Right, because then the neurons would be doing nothing else and waiting around for me to think of kick and the foot and so forth. I mean, they're doing and all if, sorts of things. That's right. And if they were, um, if they were doing that, then how could you be responding to sensory and motor input? Right. So there, there has to be some difference between the circuits that are responding to what's coming in and the circuits that are thinking about things. So how might you go ahead and test this bold and exciting hypothesis a little bit further? Uh, what sorts of experiments do you have in mind or would you be would you think about if you had infinite time and infinite money uh, <laughs> to be able to to probe this a little bit more? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm I'm still sort of in the like brainstorming phase of thinking about this. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is that um, the uh, one of the central organizing principles that we see in the visual system is to draw um, uh, to draw contrasts to emphasize where things are changing. Um, so there are neurons that start to do this uh, as early as the retina and before signals have even made their way into the brain. Hmm. And so I wonder if there is, um, if there is sort of conceptual or cognitive information that would benefit from using that kind of infrastructure. Um, so. We, we draw contrasts all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, uh, you know, words can be opposite each other in meaning. We can use negation um, to, change, uh, to change the meaning in the opposite direction. Um, to, uh, you know, right. good versus bad, um, running versus not running. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those, are, th those contrasts exist in the, in the domain of meaning, and I wonder if um, the neural infrastructure to do that involves something similar to what's done to emphasize contrast in, in, um, uh, in the domain of, of visual information. If I had a way to test that, I'd be, yeah, uh, I'd be doing it, but um, may, you know, maybe, maybe somebody watching this will have a great idea for, for how to test it. Um, and the tools that would be used to be talking about that with, with humans would be what this TMS is fMRI what, what sorts yeah. of what sorts of diagnostic tools would, would so you one, imagine using I can imagine um, uh, human patients that are undergoing surgery sometimes recording electrode arrays are implanted to kind of prevent um, the kind of disaster scenario that occurred for HM right uh, so that the, you know so that there's more information about what the particular brain structures that are in right. question for removal are doing. Right. So you can measure the activity of individual neurons in human patients or, or small groups of neurons, um, and you can get, um, you can get information in, um, that has a high temporal resolution. And, and that's sort of the gold standard for, for measuring what the brain is doing. And uh, uh, so there's a, there's a few uh, groups who have been looking at um, uh, the activity patterns of, of neurons in various areas and looking at how selective they are for different kinds of, um, of images. And some neurons are sensitive to people as categories. Um, so, uh, so for example, there are uh, neurons that have been identified in, in some subjects that are 
um, you know, responsive uh, to the actress Jennifer Aniston, and only images of Jennifer Aniston, um, but any image of Jennifer Aniston, sort of regardless of lighting, regardless of what she's wearing, regardless of what angle. So really, almost no diff no similarity in the specific pattern of light and dark that's in the image, but. Um, does she know that there are Jennifer Aniston neurons out there? Uh, they're very famous, so yeah. she probably does. <laughs> but here's here's the thing that intrigues me, and this is you know maybe just a sort of short line in the paper that that presented this finding. These the uh, Jennifer Aniston neuron that they found only responded to Jennifer Aniston if Brad Pitt was not also in the picture. <laughs> So this seemed like, you know, possibly an indication of a contrast, yeah. you know, a form of contrast. It's a strange form of contrast. It's a strange form of contrast, but... It <laughs> it's contrast nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, one is at risk of saying, uh, you know, of collecting stamps that aren't indicative of any larger pattern, but, but I think it's, um, it's often worth thinking about things before we have data, you yeah. know, before we have any idea what is going to turn out to be um, It's a strange to idea be to be able to, to, to generalize Jennifer Aniston and or generalize Brad Pitt, but, uh, but there you go. That's, your, <laughs> that's yet another quandary. Her uh, contribution uh, to neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> as, as you were talking um, about, um, about possible uh, research done with people who were um, pre-surgery or potential pre-surgery so that they don't undergo what, what happened with uh, HM. Boy, this person seems to be going back and forth. It's, I think it's the same person that's going back and forth. Yeah. The same, uh, there's the click-clack, yeah. click-clack lady. It, um, as we were talking about this, it did make me think of a conversation we had some months ago with Callanet Girls Specter mm -hmm. at, uh, at Stanford. Yep, was, I watched a little bit of that one. Uh, uh, yeah. She was talking about uh, these patients that were, again, uh, exactly the situation that they were being treated at the Stanford Center. Uh, or the, they were they were in a in a diagnostic phase to see if they could do a successful operation for epilepsy, severe epilepsy, and some of them had agreed to participate in these experiments with facial recognition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they they hit the bullseye with one particular individual who was able to, um, um, uh, because of where the electrodes happened to have been implanted, uh, there was this uh, extremely statistically significant effect of facial recognition with these people. Oh, it's great! Yeah, fascinating. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Any last questions? Anything that I missed that you we should be talking about? Is there I anything? Can't think of anything. Seems like we've covered. Yeah. Pretty much. Well, oh, it was a lot of fun. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This was great. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Really, I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Neuroscience, along with separate discussions with John Duncan, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Kalanet Grill Spector, and Miguel Nicolaelis. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. <laughs>